0: I haven't preached for a very long time. The last time was during the previous interregnum, so that must be a good ten years ago. Um, And I think that gives me an average of preaching here about once a decade. So I'm doing quite well, aren't I, really? Um, In the intervening time, that's between the last time I preached and now, I've had what you could describe as an interesting spiritual journey. Um, I found what was a fairly traditional fundamental type faith being challenged by various things. And I began to struggle with conflict, what I saw anyways, conflict and contradiction within that framework of belief. I was almost walking away and turning my back on the church and on God. But about that time... Um, Kate and I arranged to see some friends who we hadn 't seen for a long, long time. We knew them from our days in Bristol, um, but they were then living in liverpool and During supper, our friends suggested that I read some of brian mclaren 's writings anyway, the next day we 'd stayed in Liverpool The next day, Kate was in a conference, and I was wandering around Liverpool with my camera taking photographs. I wandered into the Anglican Cathedral, meandered around, found they'd got a coffee shop, which was great, and a small bookshop, and browsing on their shelves, what did I find but a Brian McLaren book, which, of course, i bought and I read and was enthralled by, and I can honestly say that reading it proved to be a turning point in my walk with God. Since, I've found a renewed but a different sort of faith, a faith in which truth doesn't always have to be historical or literal, but can nevertheless be a truth, which is, if I quote 2 Timothy 3.16, God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Well, I'll go with the teaching bit anyway. I don't want to do any rebuking are not worthy to do any correcting. We'll go with what we like. (laughs) Um, So thank you, JJ, for suggesting Brian McLaren's works. And thank you, Brian McLaren and the other authors I've read since for their ministry of bringing understanding, healing, hope, and I hope life to a faith that had withered. One of the ways I now enjoy reading the Bible is by following the Revised Common Lectionary. Um, If you don't know it, the Revised Common Lectionary is something used in a lot of liturgical type churches. The Anglican Church, for example, is one. Um, And it's a series of readings for each week of the Christian calendar and special readings for Saints' Days and things like that. Um, But I found it quite a useful guide, really, to get through swathes of the Bible that I might not otherwise read. And they tend to leave out the really difficult bits. Um, Anyway, what I normally do, and this has been my habit now for about 18 months or so, is I, I read the weekly readings on a Sunday morning, and then during the rest of the week, I spend some time reading commentaries on them and trying to learn from them. After Easter this year, the lectionary readings took me to some passages from John's Gospel, and in particular, parts of the 155 verse, yes, I counted them, five chapter, final discourse of Jesus, which is recorded in chapters 13 to 17 of John's Gospel. That's the beginning. We all know the beginning. We love it, don't we? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. We love it. Anyway, John's Gospel, yes. I I somehow got into it, and I've spent a lot of time, in addition to the lectionary readings, reading around these chapters because they seem to contain a great weight of importance, of truth, of things that Jesus himself wanted to convey to us. Uh, but in more general terms, um, the Gospel of John, it's thought, was written late in the Apostle's life. And many academics think that John led a community um, around Ephesus, which is there in Turkey. Um, as an aside, if you look at that map, can you see red dots from where you're seated? Those are known and proven Christian communities at the end of the first century. So within 70 years of Christ being crucified, less than 70 years, we have all these communities of Christians developing around the Mediterranean. I think that's really encouraging. I think it's encouraging. So at this time John was old, the remaining eyewitnesses the life of Jesus were all very old and if John did leave a community that was organizing that was spirit-led rather than organizationally led I wonder if the people in that community had a sense of uncertainty about the future what happens when he's not here so I wonder if that prompted John to write down the gospel. We don't know if John had access to the three earlier Gospels, but there are major differences between John and the other three. Um, For example, John contains no birth narrative and no reference to the virgin birth. Um, There is a common miracle across the four Gospels, and that's the feeding of the multitude Um, We find walking on water in John, Matthew, and Luke, but not in Mark. And the others uh, are not shared across them at all, as far as I understand. Um, There are stories unique to John, which include the wedding at Cana, the Samaritan woman, and the raising of, of Lazarus. There's no last supper in John with breaking of bread and sharing of wine, though there is a last meal and a long discourse around that. But remember, in John we have the living water and bread of life discourses, which are in chapters four and six. Um, Jesus' last prayer before his arrest in chapter seventeen I think contrasts quite strongly with the synoptic gospels. In those we see a very human side of Jesus, we see his anguish in the Garden of Gethsemane before his arrest. In John we see a more regal, a more divine side in that Jesus prayed, but his prayers were for the people he was leaving behind. He, his, tr- sorry, his spirit was troubled at the thought of being betrayed. That's in John 13. But his concern when he prayed in John 17 was for the disciples and the future church, not for himself. Now, interestingly, If you want to see the oldest fragment of John's Gospel known, you only have to go to that place because there is a small fragment of second century writing on papyrus that's held in the John Rylands Library in Manchester. I don't think it's very big. I saw a picture of it. It looks like about a dozen, 20 maybe words Certainly no more than that. But it's definitely from John's Gospel. Um, So final words. No, sorry, I'm not finishing the sermon here. Um, You're not all going to get an early lunch. I'm thinking of the importance of the last words an individual might speak or write to his or her loved ones if they were to be given the chance to do so. Thinking about this brought back a memory for me. When our children were both at university, we decided to book a holiday to some of the great American national parks. The only problem was, it was soon after 9-11. And with the holiday and the flights all booked, I began to worry about what I perceived as an increased risk of air travel. So I sat down with tears streaming down my face. I remember that bit very well indeed. Indeed. And I I tried to write a letter to the children um, which no doubt expressed our love for them, our pride in them, and our hopes for their future. I don't remember the words other than the opening sentence which was, if you are reading this, then something terrible has happened. By the way, the letter no longer exists. It has gone in the shredder. It was there for a long time, though. Jesus, however, in his final discourse, wasn't looking at a a one-in-a-million risk. To Jesus, there was a 100% certainty that his end was sealed, his fate was sealed. His words and prayers were focused to maximum effect. So we need to ask ourselves about what we might learn from them today. Are we open to learning, to the possibility of a shift in our thoughts and deeds? Or are our ways of thinking set in stone, habituated, inflexible, dogmatic? And are we so convinced that God has spoken to us in the past that we just need to hold on to that and that's all there is? I'm sure you'll agree that we all need to be open to learning to moving on there's always something new in the scriptures to teach us is there a theme in these chapters that's uh, chapters 13 to 17 i think there is just as in a great classical symphony the whole is held together by a melody that is repeated at intervals with interludes of a different musical Um, theme growing out of them, only to return to the melody again. So the melody acts as a key holding the whole work together. So if you look at these chapters in John, I find the melody holding things together is the theme of love. Perhaps I should say love and unity. But love is the glue of unity. Without love, There's discord, so I'll stick to love as the main theme. Sometimes the words speak of something different, but not for long. They return soon to the main and dominant harmonious melody that is love. Now, we can't look at all five chapters this morning, or you'd be here until lunchtime tomorrow. Um, But I do encourage you to read them this week, if you can. And while you're at it, read also 1 John, where love is again a dominant theme. And actually, you could read a number of other passages as well, some of which we know very well, 1 Corinthians 13, for example. There are many, many others. The theme of love just keeps cropping up time and time again. But what we're going to do is look at a part of Jesus' prayer in John 17, and I'll be reading from verse 20. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known to them in order that the love you have for me might be in them and that I myself may be in them. So what lessons can we learn? Well, I think that's lesson number one. We need to pray. Jesus prayed for unity and so should we. But perhaps not just in a general sense, more particularly asking that we ourselves might be agents of unity, peacemakers, merciful, humble, always prepared to listen to other points of view, and when we disagree, learning that we remain united in Christ in our diversity. A letter in our paper on Wednesday used a phrase that I quite like, And that phrase is agreeable disagreement. I think the church could learn a bit from that, really. So if our dogma differs from that of our brother or sister, let's learn to agreeably disagree and keep on loving and keep on in fellowship. Next point. Unity is not inevitable. Otherwise, why would Jesus pray about it? I know I'm stating the obvious as there are many, many examples of disunity in the New Testament. And there are many more examples of this in our own experience. But it seemed to be important to Jesus in the hours before his arrest. So it should be important to us. Our challenge, I think, is to try and do better now, some here might be thinking of passages like Matthew 10:34 to 39, and Luke 12:51 and 52, where Jesus says, "He came not to grant peace on earth, but to divide, with even family members set against one another." These are shocking statements, but I don't think that they're about relationships between followers of Jesus. I think they comments about what happens in reality between believers and unbelievers. Jesus' own ministry brought him into conflict, non-violent confrontation with many. As his followers, we might have to expect the same. And just in case you thought otherwise, if you read those passages, the sword Jesus was speaking of isn't literal, it's metaphorical, it's talking about the word of God. The unity we read about and learn about in these passages from John goes way beyond what we can imagine I'm going to read again verses 22 and 23. I'll repeat some verses several times, and I'm not apologizing for that. I think they're important. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Jesus is praying that we... You and I may be one as Jesus and the Father are one. I'm pausing just to allow that to settle in. Let it sink in. Unity reflecting that between the Son and the Father, and more, Jesus in us and the Father in Jesus. It's quite mind blowing. It stretches our imagination. It goes beyond our imagination. But it's the will of God. It's what God wants for us. I'm not going to explain this slide. It's just there for you to look at. The basis of unity in John isn't dependent on doctrinal details but on loving the Father Jesus and loving each other. We aren't told to love each other because we agree the same thing about ecclesiology, pneumatology, eschatology, or any other ology, asian or ism for that matter. We love each other because we know that Jesus loves us and will do so forever. It's said that there are over 40,000 Protestant denominations No doubt each one was founded in a conviction of righteousness and truth as revealed to a particular group of people. I think we're all wrong. God isn't particularly interested in the details of correct belief. He's more interested in our love for him, for all who believe in him, and our love for the disadvantaged, the dispossessed, the refugee, and how we express that love in practice. I sometimes... Quite often really wonder about what I call the bottom line of Christianity. What is the basic belief, the basic core, the essential foundation to the myriad of interpretations we find within the faith? This is my version of it. God is love and is fully revealed to us in Jesus Christ. Jesus willingly gave up his life to reconcile an estranged and separated humanity to God. Furthermore, death could not hold him. He is risen and lives today. He calls his followers to hear and do the things he taught. That's my version. You may have a different version. That's fine. That is great. But we build on a foundation. And from that, we so often build in our own interpretations. They are not as important as the things I've just shared with you. That God is love. That he wants us also to live our lives as if our life is love. God has sent his spirit to help us. You'll also find that... In these passages, John 13 to 17, God has sent his spirit to help us as it's hard to grow in love and attain unity. The word used for spirit in John is paraclete and it seems that no one quite knows how to translate it. Our Bible versions may use words like helper, counselor, comforter, words we're very familiar with. But the word parakletos in Greek can signify called to one's aid in a court of justice, a legal assistant or intercessor, someone to speak on behalf of the defendant. But why would we need legal defense? I interpret this as a role to defend godly thoughts, words and deeds in a world that is full of negatives and temptations which might come from within us from other people, or from Satan, or whatever your interpretation of things opposed to God and the powers of darkness might be. As an example, if we see a homeless person sitting on the pavement and holding out a used coffee cup to collect loose change, our first thought might be to throw in a few coins. But if you're anything like me, immediately doubts come into our minds. Do we put our heads down and walk faster? Do we do mental gymnastics? Do we think any money will only be spent on drink or drugs? Or that they're part of a scam? Modern slaves collecting money for their captors? But do we silently pray, Spirit of God, what do you say? What do you tell us to do? We might then remember Jesus' call to give to those who ask of us. But it is difficult to change long standing habits. And yes, I am using the royal we. I've found it difficult. Jesus' prayer was a prayer forever, it was for those who come to believe for us. It wasn't just for the first century, it was also for the 21st century, and will be for the next century too and continuing until the kingdom has come on earth. Verse 20 again, my prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. So we pray as Jesus also prays. The unity Jesus prays for extends much further than we can dream or think. It's open to all. There can be no us and them. There is and always has been a tribalism in human society. Us and them leads to blame, scapegoating of the other when things don't go well for us. This ultimately leads to racism, slavery, economic injustice, all kinds of discrimination, violence and warfare. We saw an example of this around the time of the Brexit vote, I think. We saw it 500 years ago when the Reformation set Catholic against Protestant and vice versa. And within just a few years, we saw Protestant set against Protestant. This wasn't the way of Jesus. He was always the one helping and encouraging those that others would keep out. The disciples tried to exclude children. Jesus said, let them come. The disciples tried to exclude non jude but Jesus said of a Roman centurion, I haven't found faith like this even in Israel. He actively reached out to those rejected by the system, tax collectors, lepers, prostitutes. The disciples repeatedly failed to understand Jesus' teaching. They jostled for position in the coming kingdom, and ultimately, they ran away. The love of God expressed through Jesus wasn't fazed by any of these things, and will not be now. He loves us in our weaknesses and failings. To paraphrase part of verse 23, the Father has loved the disciples just as the Father has loved the Son. The love of the Father goes on despite our mistakes, despite our weaknesses. He still loves us and calls us to walk with him. I'm going to shorten this bit. You'll be glad. (laughs) Probably. (laughs) Um, I was going to talk about uh, the Pharisees and the way that um, the separated ones were truly separated, holier than thou. And how they thought somehow in following rules made them closer to God and how they feared contamination. But ironically... Um, It wasn't the sinners that Jesus threatened with hell. It was those considered most holy and most obedient to the law. Jesus never feared contamination by the sin of the sinful. Jesus knew that his love could bring light, healing and wholeness into the darkness of sin. Unity seeks the welfare of the weaker or less fortunate. It cares for people without hope. So there we have it love and unity. But what about purpose? I'll read them again. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. Here it comes. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. And to reinforce it from John 13, verses 34 and 35. A new commandment I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So perhaps this is it, love for God for each other and our neighbor results in a unity which Jesus says becomes a witness to our triune God. Whoops, wrong button, very sorry. This is my last slide. Sorry, I've gone on a little bit long. Um, It's a photograph um, of the Coptic icon of friendship, which is in Selby Abbey, which we saw earlier this year. An early Egyptian saint called Minas, the one on the left, you can tell he's only a saint because he hasn't got an elaborate halo like Jesus, the one on the right. Um, Minas represents every believer. Christ has his arm on the saint's shoulder as a sign of his love. The initiative in this gesture is with Christ. This is love, not that we first loved God, but that he loved us. 1 John Chapter four, verse 10. Receiving the love of God, Minas is able to bless others. Love between the believer and Christ isn't a closed circle. It opens out more widely. They're not sitting looking at each other, but they're walking forward, walking together in the same direction. Christ carries the book of the word of God, the believer a small scroll. This suggests that Christ alone understands the fullness of God's wisdom. But the very little we understand is enough to enable us to go forward with him. So I hope the little I understand has helped you this morning morning to understand a little more of the heart of God for us and his desires for us.